can turn to the book of Obadiah. It's in the Old Testament. You, if you've been following along, you've been coming uh, week after week, you'll recognize this is exactly after Amos, which is where I ended last week. And so we're going to, this is going to be kind of interesting. Some of you who will probably, who've only been here for today are going to hear my entire sermon series on the book of Obadiah. Because this is going to be it. It's a short little book. It's right between Jonah and Amos. Well, Amos and Jonah. So you can go back and check that out. And while you're getting there, and I really do recommend you open your Bibles because I am going to be pointing to things that are going to be important here. And I think it's important that we understand what the Word of God is saying today through His Word. I think today's message and the single point that I have is extremely important for us as believers. I say that with a little trepidation because I don't know if I'm going to be able to show this as clearly as it is, but it's important that we recognize this. And here's the one and only point of the sermon, God reigns. Hope you wrote that down, you might forget it. God reigns. I say that remembering uh, a couple of things that, well, my own history and things that I've remembered about, uh, by the fact that I am a bald man with, you know, kind of gray hair all through my beard, I'm not sure there's actually a lot of red left in my beard. I think it's mostly gray now. You know that I'm an older person. I remember many years ago, and I, we, I, I, I shudder to call this many years ago, but many years ago, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, when I was a college student, when I was starting out on my uh, seminary career and trying to understand what kinds of things I was going to do, I remember that the biggest problem that the Christian church was facing as a new believer at that time was going to be atheism, the new atheism. Uh, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse were riding through the, through the land, and you could get them at the bookstores. They had piles of books at every bookstore I went to. Uh, those of you who have never been to a bookstore, it's kind of like chapters. It's just a place where they have a lot of books, and you can buy them. It's not like a library where you just take them out. I know everybody uses Amazon now, but that's at the bookstore, which I like to go to. I still go to them. There was all these books everywhere about it, the, uh, Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and uh, all sorts of people were writing these great books about this kind of thing. And now, 20 years later, almost 30 years later in some cases, two of those people, Daniel Dennett and uh, Christopher Hitchens, have gone into eternity and now understand their in incorrectness. And two others, uh, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, have begun to learn that the biggest opponent to what they, they see as valuable and good and noble was never Christianity or religion. It's something else. Similarly, we in the church, I think, should be probably noticing the same thing. The biggest opponent that we face in the culture that we live in is not whether or not people will become atheists. There is, while I used to believe that the big issue was going to be the difference between science and faith, that's not actually the biggest problem. What is the biggest problem? 
Well, uh, to use the big term that uh, sociologists and philosophers and other groups are putting together, it's called expressive individualism. Uh, I'm, I'm going to now, for a few minutes, explain uh, some things that, may, that hopefully will make my master's degree look like it has some value, um, but you never know. What is expressive individualism? The easiest way to put it is, it's the adult form of you're not the boss of me. You see, our age has a strange false god. I would like to say that it's selfishness, but it's not quite. It's actually a form of narcissism, whereby we honestly believe, and our society does an awfully lot, awful lot through movies, through TV, through news, through TikTok videos, through uh, YouTube, through everything that you see, to explain to us that the most important thing that you can do in your life is to be authentic to yourself. What is this yourself that we, you need to be authentic to? Well, I can't tell you. That's deep down into your heart. And if you look deep down into your heart, you will find this thing, this individualism that you need to express to to be a fully actualized, acceptable person in the world that we live in right now. Uh, Carl Truman, in a recent new book, it was actually released Thursday? Thursday. Um, talks about this idea of expressive individualism. He plays off the, uh, a couple of writers, Robert Bella and Charles Taylor. Uh, if those of you who know me a little bit know that my master's degree was actually on Charles Taylor, Taylorian version secularism. And he, he uses this expression, expressive individualism. And he explains it and quoting these people by saying, the term expressive individualism coined by the American scholar Robert Bella defines it as follows. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling or intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Taylor adds a little bit to it by pointing out this expressive individualism through the culture that we have, a culture of authenticity. It's not important to be true or right or acceptable nowadays. It's, true to, it's best to be authentic. And what authentic means in this context is uh, it, it, each one of us has her, his or her, or insert your pronouns here, own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society, the previous generation, or religious or political authority, I'll go further, it would include economics, biology. There is nothing that should be able to, in the world's understanding of what it is to be a good, noble, authentic human, you need to overcome all of these things outside of you. It's the heroic thing you see in most Disney movies. You know, somebody doesn't quite fit into their culture, to the people around them, and then they find out that they are actually a special person who needs to express their specialness in front of everybody else. 
and then that specialness will be accepted and everything will be good and, and noble and copacetic. Now, that's an oversimplification of Disney films. I'm not against Disney films, just gonna throw that out there. But that is the way a lot of people will read them. We seek to be authentic to ourselves, so by expressing ourselves over against society. And nowadays, it's, it's more important to be authentic and to accept authenticness than it is to be right. And I don't mean right-wing, I mean correct. It's more important to be authentic to who you are than to be, well, true, helpful, kind, generous. It's more important to be authentic than to be smart, acceptable, to be loving. It's more important to be authentic. The problem with this is, of course, this is essentially saying that the ultimate def definition of all goodness, of all morality, of all acceptability is me. Not in the sense of just me, you know, like the guy standing up here. I mean like my heart. I need to follow my heart and my heart is the only thing I should ever follow. Uh, for those of you who don't quite grasp theology, that's the role of God. The definition of rightness, the definition of goodness, the definition of all that is useful and beautiful and good is God. And I, 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 I know some of you, you are nice people, I really enjoy your company, but with all due respect, you are not the definition of goodness, nobility, justice, kindness, and beauty. You are very nice people. I would say that some of you are very beautiful people, but you're not the definition. Christians, those of us who have more conservative viewpoints like the one I just expressed, will then see that this rising tide of culture and as we saw with the rising tide of atheism in the early 21st century, we'll see this rising tide of things that are developing in the society and we'll get pessimistic. We'll start saying things like, well, we need to make sure that we're ready for persecution. We, by the way, to be clear, we should be. Because the society is going the wrong way. This is the basis behind why some of us get really, really deep into culture war issues. And don't get me wrong, I think it's important to be political, it's important to understand who you vote for and all that kind of stuff, but centrally speaking, that's not what Christianity is about. It's not about winning the culture in that sense. It's about lifting up Jesus Christ and letting people come to know him. It's about pointing people to him. But we can get into these kinds of pessimistic ideas. We can start imagining that we understand where society is going, which is really strange because almost none of us will claim to be prophets or sons of prophets. I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to claim to be a prophet. If I do, somebody find out if I need more medication or something. 
I'm not a prophet. Today's sermon, though, is from a prophet. And I'll tell you what a prophet actually says about the situations that people find themselves in, that the people of God find themselves in, that the people who are not of God find themselves in. God reigns over expressive individualism and atheism and scientism and secularization theory. God reigns over our fears and our, our dismays at the way that things are going, the questions that other people are having, the true feelings of hurt we might have about other people and what they're saying and doing around us. God reigns. That's the point of Obadiah. We, we as humans, this is not a new thing. It's a new thing that we actually just use our heart as God. That's not, a, that's not historically common. Most parts of history are, under, are sane enough to recognize that that doesn't really work. We'll find out soon enough. Because reality always wins. Um, everybody will tell you that. Reality eventually wins. And the message of the Bible is that reality is a person. The message of the Bible is that reality is God. And reality actually cares who you are. Reality cares about what you do and what you think. And he reigns. At the time of what we're looking at here in Obadiah, now, I gotta be clear, in Obadiah, we don't know the specific dating. We know vaguely what's happening here. We can gather by the text where Obadiah is talking about and the time he's talking about. He's talking about a period where the people of Judah, which is what, uh, the people of the main people of the Old Testament, if you've been reading, uh, one section of Israel. By the way, if you use the term Jew, it's actually a form of Judah. That's where you get the word. Judah has been destroyed. They've been forced into exile. And in the midst of this exile, there's a people next door, a people who would normally be, well... They should be somewhat kind to the people of, of, uh, of Judah because, well, they're brothers. I, I don't mean that metaphorically. I actually mean that kind of in a direct sense, at least in the basis of where they came from. The people of Edom and the people of Judah are actually descended from brothers. They're both children of Isaac. But as happens with people who are very close, I know that my best fights were with my twin brother, and we shared a womb for nine months, so Edom and Judah don't get along. It starts right at the beginning. If you go to Genesis 25, verses 23 to 34, you can see uh, the Lord said to her, being their mother, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then you can skip down a little bit. When these two boys are born, 
they, uh, Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in tents, and Isaac, Isaac, their father, loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And just to give you an example of the situation and things that they were dealing with throughout their lives, these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, Jacob is making some stew. Esau comes in from the field and he's exhausted. He says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is, sounds a lot like red in Hebrew. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob for lentil stew. So there's a lot of interesting things going on in the background. Both these brothers grow into people. Uh, Jacob or Israel did so much that when Israel left Egypt, the, the Edomites, when, okay, just to go through the history of Judaism of Israel, Israel goes into exile in Egypt. They get, become slaves. Moses comes. I mean, you've seen the Ten Commandments. You know what, what's happening. They come out. They're in the, in the wilderness on their way to enter the promised land, and Edom is on their way. Edom decides that they're not going to let Jacob through, though. In Numbers 20.20, they say, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. So they're not very close. They're brothers, but they're not very close. This keeps going. Israel becomes a powerful, lest you think that Edom is the only bad people. Well, the Jews become very powerful. And then in 2 Chronicles 25.12... Judah, they, the men of Judah captured 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock. And they were all dashed to pieces. We would call that a war crime modernly. So Jew, <laughs> Israel is not a good people. Edom are not good people. They have opposition to each other. And so when Edom watches as Judah gets destroyed. The people who are their enemies come in and wipe them out and start taking them back to their own places. Edom gets, feels that they've gotten their comeuppance. And so they go along with it. Verses 10 and 11 of Obadiah. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On that day, you stood aloof. On that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So what happened is Edom had seen the problems happening. They saw these people that had done horrible things to them in the past and they felt that because, well, because there is no God ruling over everything, there is no necessity for us to follow a God, we're going to bring justice into our own hands and we're going to do justice we're going to stand aloof and we're going to help them the their enemies to overthrow them in verses 12 to 14 of Obadiah you can see the many things it's it's done in kind of a poetic way uh, Obadiah tells you uh, says don't do this stuff and then 
because this is the stuff that Edom was going to do. Do not gloat over the day of your bro- over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Translation: Edom was rejoicing in the day of their misfortune, in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over this disaster in the day of the calamity. Do not loot his wealth. In the day of his calamity, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And the reason Obadiah says all that is because that's exactly what they were doing. So the situation is, Judah is being destroyed. They're being invaded. Uh, Like what we're seeing in Ukraine happens, everybody, lots of people run away from the advancing armies. But imagine what would happen if the countries next door simply closed their borders. And if somebody came, made it cross the border, they simply grabbed them, arrested them, and sent them back to their enemies to be destroyed. That's what Edom was doing. Now, that's not a good thing. I mean, they felt justified in doing it, probably. They felt that it was a good thing to do because this is what they're doing, what was done to them. But that's not what it says here in the text. You see, this is why God is angry with them. Obadiah 1 to 9, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle i.e. God is sending out a messenger to say to the nations, rise up against Edom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You have dwelt in the clefts of the rock, and your lofty dwelling you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you out to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Edom had believed that they were isolated from all of the problems. They believed that they stood aloof from all of the problems that were happening to Judah. And they're finding out they're wrong. Obadiah is warning them, you're wrong. Reality is God. God rules this thing. You don't get to define truth. God does. You don't get to set what what the punishments are just. God does. Something greater oversees everything else. You see, 
Edom had believed that the only thing that they have to worry about is geopolitics, namely whether the Babylonian Empire would overthrow the Judean Empire and whether they had the military strength to defend against both the Babylonians and the Judeans and, the, and that kind of thing. When in fact, everything is ruled by God. We can't predict the future. Something uh, a unnamed European dictator is finding out right now. You can't predict the way these kinds of things will go. And reality always wins. And reality is God. You see, God ultimately turns all things to justice. I've had this thing that I've had to say every single sermon so far, so I may as well say it now. If we don't repent and turn to follow God, we're God's enemies. And being God's enemy doesn't end well for his enemies. He's God. You're not that powerful. Your heart isn't that powerful. Unfortunately, reality is going to win. We don't get to determine things. We don't get to choose what kinds of ways the world is going to work. God rules the world. We don't. And they're finding out that they don't rule the world either. Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. If as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And in the holy, and it shall be holy. And in the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be like a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Edom had believed that they were doing the right thing, that they were making justice work out, but they hadn't cared about what God said about justice. They simply defined it based on their own understanding. But the other side is there too. Can you imagine what Judah is thinking at this point? When the prophecy of Obadiah is happening, the people of Judah are being destroyed. Now, to give you an idea, the people, if, if I'm right about this, Judah is the southern kingdom, which is the last of the people of Israel to not be destroyed. This would be catastrophic for them. It sounds like the end of their history as a people if anything sounds like God has betrayed your trust, God has finally said, I'm not going to do anything, it might even be easy to say there is no God at this point. Because everything that I believed in, everything that I thought was a promise of God has turned against us. We are destroyed. How can we be brought back from this? Our enemies, like Edom next to us, our former brother and now our enemy, laughs over us 
and destroys us and hands over our refugees to our enemies, how can there possibly be a God? By the way, in case you're interested, just for a history lesson, can you find Edom on a map? Modern political map, can you find me Edom? You can't because Edom, or what eventually became Idumea, was completely eliminated around the second century BC. Most of the remaining people became Jews. Because you can find Israel. Because God's promises stand. Even when you don't think they can. God is not bound by our imaginations. God has no binding by us. The situation isn't that we reign and God responds to our reigning. God reigns. And when he says something, it will stand. Obadiah 19 to 21. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah, say it loud, say it quickly and with confidence, and nobody will understand that you don't know how to say it, shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel, no, the exiles of the host of the people of Israel, Get that, exiles. That means people who have been cast out. You guys who think you can, God can't possibly save you from the uttermost ends of the earth? <laughs> Watch me. God is far more powerful than your doubts. Your pessimism is not adequate to overcome the power of God. And he is good. He really is the definition of beauty. He really is the definition of goodness. And you can't defeat him. Satan's been trying for millennia and he can't be defeated. So you guys who think you're exiles, you think God can't possibly help? God turns around and says, watch me. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's easy to imagine that things have gone too far that our society has gone too far away from God. There is no way God can overcome this. Well, I've done some church history. That has been the truth every single time the church grew. Every single time you watch the church grow in explosive ways, do you know what happens immediately before that? Everybody believed the church was dying. Because the church is not dependent on us, praise God. 
God's victory over sin is not dependent on us. It never has been. It should, you, we should recognize that in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, when you became believers, were you seeking God po- positively? I'm going to be honest, I wasn't. I was trying to find reasons to not believe in God. And I failed because in a fight between me and God, guess who wins? It isn't me. Praise God. His promises stand. The people of Israel are finding it out here in Obadiah. That's what the promise of Obadiah is. God's promises will stand regardless of the opposition you have. Regardless of whether you want to oppose God, God's promises stand. They simply work out because he's God. Reality is not your opinion of reality. This is a a little bit of a strange philosophical point, but I am not an idealist. I am not going to tell you that reality is how you interpret it. That's not the way it works. Reality is what reality is. Your interpretation is either accepting reality or not accepting reality. You don't create it. I say that to my fellow believers who believe that they can speak a word of faith and change reality. Sorry, no, you're not God. Not little or otherwise. You are not God. God is God. He defines reality. I say that to the people who believe that, with, that, you know, I have my truth and you have your truth and we're going to deal with our truths together. No, I have my opinion of truth, you have your opinion of truth, and then there's truth. And that truth always wins. That truth is what reveals itself to us through Jesus Christ. That truth is what we read, read of in the pages of the scriptures. And that truth always wins. So, that gets to a couple of things that we probably should have been chewing on since I said from the beginning what this point of this sermon is. Only one point again. There are implications to this point, but there's only one point. God reigns. That changes things for us. Or it should. Are we like Edom? Are we sitting around trying to define the world based on what we would want it to be? Do we think that reality is not going to work out unless I work it out? I can ignore what God says to be faithful looks like. I can ignore what morality tells me should be. I can just be a powerful man and grab all the power together and push through and work out reality in whatever way I want. With all due respect, that is dangerous because you're setting yourself against God and setting yourself against God is never healthy. Um, I, I like to watch Japanese anime and you know one of the things that's interesting about Japanese anime, and I, I, do, I do use some, some uh, discernment when I'm watching them, but one of the things is, all, every once in a while, there's this 
This guy, it's a trope in the, in the type of cartoons, a guy who looks completely normal. He has absolutely nothing that looks good about him. He doesn't look like he could possibly do anything. And then this massive, powerful entity comes up and, say, and, and you know, says, you need to do what I say. And, says, um, and possibly even beats up his friends and stuff. And then the normal guy looks up and completely defeats everybody who opposes him instantly with no questions whatsoever. That's what it is to fight God. It's never a good idea because God always wins. He's always more powerful than us, whether you see it or not. And that's actually a good thing. Because he's always the hero, too. Remember what I said last week. God is holy. He cannot sin. And since he cannot sin, he cannot sin against you. Notice I didn't say he does not sin against you. He cannot. That is an impossibility. That is a logical impossibility, not a functional impossibility. He literally cannot sin against you. God sinning against you is a little bit like uh, square circles or married bachelors. It just doesn't work. It's a false idea. And he always wins. So if today you are trying to define your own life based on yourself, today I, I'm going to tell you, for your own sake, turn from your wickedness and live. God has set a way out for you to, I'll get to this in a moment, God has set a way for you to be accepted by him. He has set a way for you to be reconciled to him completely. Take it. It's not going to be easy in every sense. It is going to require that we put to death daily the deeds of the flesh because, let's face it, we're really, really used to sitting and not really, really used to being holy. But your acceptability isn't based on your abilities to be holy. If it was, nobody would be. Your acceptability is set by Christ, and he is available to you now. But denying God is to deny reality, and reality wins. God wins because God reigns. And it's more glorious than you even know right now. Because literally, the definition of beauty is God. All things good, all things noble, all things valuable find their basis in God. Every good and perfect gift you know about, you think about right now, has been sent down from the Father of lights. Why would you fight this God? It's not healthy, it's not even beautiful. So why do it? But the other point, and there's two points for those of us who are believers. Firstly, your pessimism is wrong. Right now, some of us are thinking, when we look out at the world, when we look out at our lives, that things po can't possibly work out well for God's people. 
And yes, there may be pain and suffering in the future. Yes, there may be difficulties in the near term. But the world doesn't reign. God does. The culture doesn't reign. God does. We don't need to be running kinds of wars against the culture because we're not the ones who win this war anyway. God does. We just need to be faithful. We need to be loving people in the midst of the, of the world that we live in because we're free to be. God reigns. And that means something else. Right now, today, this church is not even a percentage of the population of Newfoundland and Labrador. Not even a percentage of the population of St. John's. It's like 1% of 1% of the population of St. John's is here. That means there are an awful lot of people who right now are living lives as if there is no God. I'm not saying that we are the only people preaching this, but let's face it, if I put all the churches together and all of the people in all the different churches throughout uh, St. John's today, we're not getting to 1% of the population of the city. And if that's the case, there are a lot of people who need to hear about God. Not from self-righteous scolds. Not from people who think that we have something better because we're better people. But people who will just simply point to who God is and how beautiful he is and tell them to trust him. And that gets to the point for those of you who aren't actually, who are actually in rebellion to God right now, and for those of us who are believers. God has made a way for us to be acceptable to Him that has nothing to do with our abilities, but instead just calls us to trust in Him. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to about chapter 2, verse 3, I guess. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. Do you, do you today have a, uh, that abiding sin that you think keeps you uh, separated from God? <laughs> You're not that strong. Your sin is not that strong. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not because you have really good willpower and are able to stop doing it per se, but because God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Different part of scripture. I'll get back to the scripture I'm reading. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and not just forgive us of all sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I remember reading a story by uh, someone who was struggling with, I would say, actually a fairly abusive faith community. 
She was trying very hard to make sure that she put to death these particular deeds of the flesh because she was afraid that if she didn't put to death these deeds of the flesh, she wouldn't be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the exact opposite of the reasoning you see here in 1 John. The exact opposite. Because you are accepted, because you bring your sin to him, because you are willing to confess your sin to him, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So keep bringing it to him. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Yes, that's, that, that includes all of you people in nice suits and stuff. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Christians don't, aren't holy because we want to be acceptable to God. We're acceptable to God, so we become holy. That's the way it works. And today, if you are thinking that, you, that your sin is the only sin that can thwart Jesus Christ... Let me humbly point out, you're wrong. He reigns. So if you're rebelling against God today, it's time right now to lay that down, rebellion down and turn to him. Give up on being the definition of all things good and noble and acceptable. It's honestly tiring, and there's a better definition anyway. It's a task you were never meant to carry. Turn to God and let him do his work in you. Let him be the definition of goodness and holiness. Let him be the great desire of your heart so that you would be changed that way. And today, those of you who have come to Saving Faith, if you're finding the work hard, if you have that thing in you that is just so difficult to deal with, the thing that in the morning you look in the mirror and you say, it's still there and I hate it, take heart. It may be stronger than you. The sin likely is stronger than you, but it's not stronger than God. Bring it to him. In a fight between you and your sin, you, you might lose. In a fight between God and your sin, your sin doesn't have a chance. And finally, for those, if, you are not, if you are by God's grace walking in holiness today, if you have God working in your life, be careful lest you fall, but let your heart break for those who right now don't know the joy of God. They don't know that there is a definition that, that's out there that can be followed. They don't know that God cares for them and has died for them and desires to reconcile them to himself. And so that right now, they're busy trying to find all sorts of interesting ways to be acceptable to themselves, to be acceptable to the society around them or to even despair of those things and make other people do whatever they want to affirm me. Let your heart break for them. Don't get angry at them. They don't have a sweet clue what's going on. They're like Edom. 
They think that they, they can define the world themselves and they're wrong. So let your heart break for them. Be faithful around them. Tell them the truth. Again, not as self-righteous scolds, but as people who just know that God loves them. God loves them even more than any of us can love them. Which, by the grace of God, if God will be so kind as to work through us to be loving like this, I pray that that would mean something. That when I say, God loves you more than I love you, I pray that they are going to understand then that God loves them an awful lot. So we need to pray. We need to pray ultimately not for all of these little tiny things, but primarily that we understand that single two-word point that is the basis of the book of Obadiah. And I would actually go so far as to say may actually be the basis of the entirety of Scripture. It's just explaining what that means. Brothers and sisters, God reigns. Today, he has always reigned. He will always reign. Let's be people who reflect that. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is weighty. And it's a lot less weighty than you are. Oh God, you love us with a love that we don't even understand. We don't grasp at any level. And yet you go through everything to show it to us. Lord God, we pray that today we would be both receptors of your love and reflectors of your love. Lord God, I pray that my brothers and sisters and I today would love you well. And that in loving you well, would recognize your love for us and that you reign. That ultimately love wins. Your love. Not mine, not the world's. Yours. May we live this way. May we trust you in the midst of this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.